And our scripture reading is from the book of Isaiah. We will be focusing in chapter 50. But we'll be reading um, a few verses. I thought of um, even reading them now so that we see the sequence. In chapter 42, a few verses. In chapter 49, a few verses. And then our section in chapter 50. And the reason we, we do so is that Um, These three chapters in a row are what has been called the songs of the servant of the Lord. Chapter 42, uh, chapter 40, um, 2 is the first one where God is in essence sending forth his son to the ministry. Um, It is just as other prophets had their days where they were being called. This is the day in eternity where the Father was calling the Son. And then we have a parallel portion in chapter 49. And then we have another portion in chapter 50 where our sermon will be focused. And so beginning in chapter 42, simply verses 1 through 6. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, In whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he have set judgment in the earth. And the isles shall wait for his law. Thus saith God the Lord, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, He that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people For a light of the Gentiles. And then we go to chapter 49. Also verses 1 through 6 of 49. The difference here is that it will be the Lord Jesus himself. The Messiah as if responding to that call. And announcing his commission. Listen O isles unto me. And hearken ye people from far. The Lord hath called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me. And made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me. And said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught. And in vain, yet surely my judgment is with the Lord, and my work with my God. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb, to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, 
It is a light thing that thou should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. And now chapter 50. We'll read verses 1 and into chapter 51 verse 5. Thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. This is in speaking of the exile that God's people would be taken into. In verse 2, Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all, that it cannot redeem, or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness, their fish stinketh, because there is no water, and dieth for thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. And the Lord hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He is near that justifieth me, who will contend with me. Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they all shall wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. Behold, all ye that kindle a fire, that compass yourselves about with sparks, Walk in the light of your fire, and in the sparks that ye have kindled. This shall be, shall ye have of mine hand. Ye shall lie down in sorrow. Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord. Look unto the flock whence ye are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. Look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bare you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. For the Lord shall comfort Zion, he will comfort all her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving in the voice of melody. Hearken unto me, my people, and give ear unto me, O my nation, for a law shall proceed from me, and I will make my judgment to rest for a light of the people." My righteousness is near, my salvation is gone forth, and mine arms shall judge the people, the isles shall wait upon me, and on mine arm shall they 
trust. Thus far in the reading of God's holy word, and let us together. I did preach through chapter 53. It is a very well-known chapter. Um, often that is the main focus. But it's, it's important to know that that's the fourth in a series of four. And there is a transition. If you noticed the very first one where God is setting forth His Son and declaring that He is called to be one whom He will send and be a light unto the Gentiles. There's, there's no mention of suffering at that point. But there is a focus that his ministry will be one of proclamation. Not a proclamation where he would go out to the streets and be very loud, but that he would speak very lovingly and not break the bruised reed. And those were all wordings in the sense that he will meet people who are about to break and he would not bruise them. He would only heal them. He would not quench the smoking flax. That's another way to say He will meet people who are about to die in their pain and their sorrow in the depths of their sins. And He would not quench them. He would only make them live. Think of the times He spoke to people and said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And how that woman must have been revived by that comfort when she was about to die by the weight of her sin and the accusation of others. But then the second um, song of the servant in chapter 49, there's still the focus on, on His Word and how, how God would use Him in terms of His preaching. But then there's the beginning of something of humiliation. Something of a frustration. That was in chapter 49.4 where, where Christ is known of speaking and He says, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord. There's, there's something sad going on. And it's bringing the reality of oncoming suffering. But it's still in a sense a mystery. You have nothing of its depth. And then we get to chapter 50. And the reality of suffering is becoming more clear when we read the words in verse 6, chapter 50, verse 6, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. And I want to take a moment right now to read when these very words were fulfilled in the life and ministry of Christ. You'll remember that it was when He is being judged. In Matthew 26, and I'll be reading in verse 61 on, He is before Caiaphas. He is in in that mock tribunal. One of the false witnesses says this in Matthew twenty six sixty one. This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Verse 62. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, and he quotes a passage of Daniel, Thou hast said, 
Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. That's a reference to the second coming of Christ. He was equaling him to the coming Messiah. In verse 65, Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witness? Behold now, ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him. And others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? And then the parallel passage in Mark chapter 14. Just three verses there. Verse 63. Mark 14 verse 63. Then the high priest rent his clothes and said, What need we any further witness? Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to guilt, to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to buffet him and to say unto him, Prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. 700 years before that event, prophet Isaiah, in the third song of the servant, declared that he would give his back to the smiters, that he would give his cheek to them who pluck off the hair. He would not hide his face from shame and spitting. So we want to consider this passage with with the theme of salvation out of shame. This is the Savior, but we arrive at this song that declares that, that that frustration that is begun to be declared in chapter 49 is, is showing where it comes out of. It comes out of something that in, in, in the eyes of man, it seems that this, this is impossible. How can a man be a Savior who is also being so smitten and so reproached to be even spat upon? And yet it is... In this, that salvation comes forth. And, and so we'll look at this theme, and, and our first point will be the sovereignty of Christ, secondly, the obedience of Christ, and thirdly, the suffering of Christ. Now, I start with the sovereignty of Christ because we, we want to see that this very passage in which it, it, is, it is autobiographical, the one who says... I gave my back to the smiters. If you follow grammatically all of the pronouns, he is the one who in verse 2 says, At my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. That's verse 2 towards the end. Their fish stinketh because there is no water and dieth for thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. This very one who does these acts that are divine is the very one who says, I give my back to the smiters. And so what we have here is that the suffering servant is a sovereign one. And he is none but God himself. Because only God could make dark 
the heavens. Only God could dry up the sea. And, and what you have to remember here is in, in these very words, they're, they're familiar to our ears. And maybe it has already come to you, boys and girls. When was it that God made everything dark? And you'll remember it was three days and three nights that it was all dark. And, and it was also connected when, when the sea was dried and it was also connected where close to those days, there was an element where, where the fish were dying. Remember, when God turned the Nile into blood, the fish died, and it did stink. And then before they left, there were those three days of darkness, so deep it could be felt. But it led to that liberation of God's people. But when they met with the Red Sea, God dried it and they passed in dry ground. See, the one who's saying, I did all those things, is the one who's saying that He gave His cheeks to them who plucked off the hair. And so before we go and focus upon the suffering of Christ, we can focus, and gladly so, and with great gratitude... And, and, and think of this, we are grateful that He suffered, but we're grateful also that He's God. Beloved, we know that His suffering makes Him sympathetic to yours, but if that's all He was, what good would it be a God who could be sympathizing with your suffering but had no power to help you? He could say, I know that you're lonely, but He had no power to be with you in your loneliness. Our God is not one who's only sympathetic with our suffering. He can actually do something about it because He's sovereign. He is God with the same breath that the suffering servant will speak of giving his back to the smiters. He speaks of drying up the sea at my rebuke. He doesn't need to use his hands to dry up the sea. He simply speaks and the sea dries up. He is sovereign. We're speaking of a God who suffered. And this is what I mean, that our, our words cannot be sufficient to speak of what we find in Scripture. We, we, we are merely um, emphasizing and speaking and bringing, repeating back, as it were, Scripture to our hearts and meditating upon what God has already prophesied and just, just staying in awe at what we see. His, his back was bruised. We saw this morning in Psalm 128 that the plowers plowed those long furrows on my back. And yet at His rebuke, the sea dried up. Yes, His cheeks were harmed and it hurt. And especially the, 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 the reproach of having someone plucking off the hair of your breed, of your beard. It, it is, you wonder if it is more painful or if it's the contempt that's so painful. But He's the one who clothed the heavens with blackness. He felt shame and sorrow. Being spat upon is the greatest reproach that someone can give to another in terms of actions. And yet, He's the one who has power to redeem, to deliver, to rebuke, and dry up the seas. And see, in, in, this, in this prophecy, there's just a little sample of what He's able to do. 
He's a suffering Savior. But He's a Savior. He is sovereign. And I, and I could ask you, why, why does it matter? Like, why do we need to focus upon these things? Well, first of all, because of what, um, in a sense, I've already said. See, you, you need a Savior who is like this. Because, yes, in, in His suffering, He's paying for your sins. But see, if He had gone to the cross and just suffered, in a sense, for others, but was not divine, He could never resurrect from the grave. And, and really, He would have never been um, holy as He was. Because He came to this world holy and pure. And He remained holy and pure even when there was so much temptation and so much affliction. And we'll focus in our second point, how his obedience is, is so critical and so astonishing in, 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 in the light of so, so, so much trial. But see, his divinity is absolutely necessary because after he died and after he paid for sin, his body's in the grave and if he had been only man, he would have remained in the grave. But being God, he resurrected. And, and we find references to the resurrection where, yes, the Father was involved in resurrecting his Son. The Spirit was involved through his power resurrecting the Lord Jesus. But that the Lord Jesus himself in his divinity was involved in resurrecting um, his body and having his soul join his body again. So it matters because this is a Savior we need, a Savior who is divine. And then also it matters because it helps us be grateful. It helps us in our gratitude. When we, when we think of His suffering, we are grateful, but it, it gives even a balance to our gratitude. I don't know if you've ever felt this, but I remember in visiting many Catholic churches in Brazil, there's, there's this... Um, tour that you can do where you visit. In Brazil, there are very many Catholic churches from the 1600s. They are decorated with gold um, in so many places because of um, a, a state in Brazil, Minas Gerais especially, where a lot of gold was discovered. A lot of colonies were sent that way. And because it was through the Portuguese crown that, that they were all there, they built these massive Catholic churches. They're, they're beautiful. They're elaborate. But as you do these tours, the, the, the feeling you have is that of a dead Christ who is to be pitied. Because you see a dead Christ everywhere on the crucifixes, in those statues of Mary showing a condescension, but Jesus is dead on her arms. There are even places I remember seeing a, a dead body, as it were, in a crystal coffin. And it was meant to be the dead body of Jesus. And, and I remember, thankfully, our teachers were from a Christian school, and they would tell us, he's not there. That's not who he is. I remember a teacher taking out all of us after one of these churches and giving, in a sense, a little, a little lesson there. Listen, we're seeing a lot of dead Christs. That is not who Christ is. He is reigning. He is in heaven, 
So when we focus on the sufferings of Christ, there's almost a danger that we will pity Him in His suffering and that our minds just have Him there on a cross or in a grave. And yet, we need to think of the reality. Yes, He did undergo all of that, and there's a place to focus. In our third point, we will go exactly there. But we begin by seeing He he is God. He is divine. So we don't pity Him in His suffering. We have our hearts full of gratitude for it. But in a sense, acknowledging, giving a balance, to even when we are sad about his suffering, we are with a gratitude in it because he is God also. Now this is why this is important. We, we need a Savior who both suffered and is divine and also to give us gratitude and even to give us comfort, thirdly. See, comfort in this again. Okay, here I am in my suffering, so I know that God, um, Christ, understands, and He's a sympathetic high priest, but thankfully He's not a high priest who knows what it means to suffer. He's also God who knows what it means to come out of the grave after all of His suffering. And, And even as He's giving His back to the smiter in His suffering, He's still the God who who can turn off the lights because He's divine. And so I realize in my suffering, I have a Jesus who is, who, who is sympathetic, but who's also powerful and who can comfort and help me. And even if he doesn't do it while I'm living and he wants me to live under certain afflictions, I know that when I see him, I will see him in his glory and all the afflictions will be gone. There will be no more persecutors. There will be no more sickness. And I will see King Jesus in the fullness of His glory. He was with me while I suffered on earth. I will be with Him when I go to heaven. So what good would it have been um, to have the pity of one who could not save you? He just knows what it means to suffer. Or to have the understanding of one who could not pardon you. See, if Jesus had suffered all he did, went to the cross, but never resurrected, he could never offer a word of pardon to anyone or the thought of one who could not really be present. If Jesus could say, well, I know what it means for you to be lonely. I felt lonely on the cross. But we want him not just to know. We want him to be with us. And he is God. So he does come. He promised, where two or three are there in my name, I shall be with them. If you go to the ends of the world, worlds and proclaim my message, lo, I will be with you, Jesus said, because he's God. So the sovereignty of Christ. Now secondly, we look at the obedience of Christ. Now, now this already is in a sense something that should bring a certain shock as you're reading the passage because we're, we're reading of one who at his rebuke dries up the sea. He makes the rivers a wilderness. He, 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 he closed the heavens, verse 3, with blackness. So we're reading this and we're thinking, this is God. This is, this is one who is divine. But in verse 4, he says, the Lord God... So this very person speaks of Jehovah hath given me. So this me who has been speaking in ways whereby he must be divine, he has the Lord God give him something. What is it? The tongue of the learned. It might not sound like it yet, but it is already something very humiliating. 
Because this one who has the power to turn off the lights, he needs to be given something to learn. And in what way? That I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He, he wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. This is why I speak of the obedience of Christ. This man who is speaking, who is God, he is saying, I am not rebellious. I am obedient. And what I have learned from the Father, I will give out in declaration. I will give a word to those who are weary. He's not only obedient, he's one who's learned to obey. And again, this, this you could say is the first degree of humiliation in this song that's already speaking of one who, although he is divine, he is also human. You, you see, beloved, it's not that theologians get together and just say, you know, let's talk about the incarnation because that sounds like a very interesting doctrine. No, God's word is the one telling us this one who is divine and whom, who makes a sackcloth in the heavens... He makes the heavens mourn. Everything turns dark. He learns. He obeys. And he proclaims a word in season to those who are weary. That's a man. But he is God. This is Christianity. And without, without these truths, there is no Christianity. The Lord Jesus is God and He is man. He's not one who was created one day and made higher than all the angels like, like um, Arius wanted to proclaim. He would say He was begotten. So that means one day He didn't exist and, and the next He was. And yes, He was the first begotten. Christ is, is the greatest exalted creation of God. He, he thought He was rendering Jesus so much adoration, but it was, it was a false, um, idolatrous heresy. No. At my rebuke, I dried up the sea, but I also learned... The Father, the God, God, Lord, Jehovah gave me a word in season. He taught me how to preach. And see, it's, it's, it's thinking. It makes us think of the Lord Jesus. And He's growing up. And he, He's listening to His rabbis and to His teachers. And, and, and at some point, it was very clear to Him that He had a ministry, that, that He was called. And, and, and then He tells His parents, Did you not know that I was to be about my Father's business? Matthew Henry says this about this, this humanity along with the divinity of Christ. He says, this is one of the things which angels desire to look into. And we may try to look into it as long as we will. For beyond and above all controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh. We can speak about it. We proclaim it. We must believe it. But we do not understand all of its intricacies. But we bow to this truth. 
And, and now notice this reality. Two things about it that's so precious. It's, it's not here speaking so much that he gave a word in season to all the people that had to hear him. Jesus spoke not only to weary people. He spoke to people who should know they were weary, but they didn't think of it. We think of the Pharisees. But here the focus is more that he learned the words to speak to those who were weary. And, and you know what comes to our minds we think of his words to the Samaritan woman where he offered the, the water of life to her. And think of how he spoke life into the widow's son. Can you imagine a widow who's trailing behind the coffin of her son? She's already a widow. She has one son. She's about to bury him. Jesus comes and touches the coffin. Everything's well for that mom. She has her son alive. What, what a word in season to them who are weary. Remember how he arrives to the land of the Gadarenes and he delivers that man who was possessed not by one or two or even three demons, but by a legion. And that man ends the whole episode dressed in his own mind, in the right mind. He wants to be a a disciple. Jesus makes him a missionary to the Gadarenes. Imagine the word that he heard from the Lord in season. The Lord Jesus received those tears and the anointing and the repentances of that dear woman that would not stop um, 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 weeping at his feet. And she word, uh, heard a word in season. When, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, they were weary. Remember, it was in that context that their hearts were troubled. And Jesus is washing their feet. And later he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. He gave his hand to a drowning disciple. It came certainly with a word to the weary. He fed 5,000 hungry people. That was food and the sermon was to the weary. He, he said things like, come unto me, those who are weary and heavy laden. And on and on and on. His ministry was exactly like this. Um, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. That's who Jesus was. And that's what he did. And the Lord Jesus, before he turns his, gives his back to the smiters. Um, He says, I did what I was told to do. I spoke a word in season. I learned it. I spoke it. Then notice this in verse 5. He says, the Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. And, And it's the very next phrase that he says, I gave my back to the smiters. So, so here, before we go to our third point, where we jump into the whole um, element of suffering itself, and we're still here in the middle, we saw the divinity, and now we're seeing this humanity in obedience, and, and in this obedience, Jesus is saying, I did not rebel. And so, boys and girls, you need to understand this, you, you and I, all of us, um, deal with the elements of disobedience. And disobedience is turning our backs to God and, and following the way that is evil and sinful. And Jesus is saying, I did not do this. I, I did not turn my back. God said to come to this world and suffer as a Savior for sinners. I did not turn my back to God. I came to this world. And so what God is doing here is putting the whole ministry of His Son, the Lord Jesus is saying, my whole ministry here on earth was a ministry of obedience. 
He's saying, this is what I came to do. I came to obey. The Father told me to come. I said, yes, sir. And I came. It was a ministry of obedience to the Father. And in obedience to the Father, I gave my life to, so that sinners could be forgiven and could be cleansed. And the first thing he says as we think, well, in what ways were you obedient? What ways did you obey? Could we know? And this is where we come to our third point. The suffering of Christ. Look how close it is. Neither turned away back. I I did not disobey. What did I do instead? I gave my back to the smiters. And beloved, again, look how powerful this is. Here, here if, you, if, you, if you read it too quickly, you'll miss it. But do you see the element of sovereignty here? Um, he gave his back to the smiters. Think of that. Think of the Lord Jesus being placed down. And here are those mean men starting to scourge Jesus. See, at the eyes of the people, they're all looking. He lost. His ministry's over. Why would anyone follow a man who is now like a criminal going to the dreaded place of the cross? But see what God is saying here is, Jesus was saying, I'm obeying. I'm obeying my Father. And when you see Christ on the cross and you see that people are saying, well, you save others yourself, you cannot save. Christ could have said, yes, because I'm obeying. Come down and we will believe in you. Jesus could say, no, because I'm obeying. And as those thieves are casting the same at his teeth and saying, why are you there? If you're saying you're such a big man, why don't you save yourself? Jesus could say, because I am obeying. In order for you and me to be saved, Jesus had to obey. Now think, beloved, if he had disobeyed. And, and of course, we only put this here to, to be more grateful that he didn't because it's, it's a hypothesis that would be impossible. This would never have happened. But we can think about it only to appreciate all the more. What if Jesus had turned away back in verse 5? Then we would not have verse 6, I gave my back to the smiters. We would have, I spared my back from the smiters. And beloved, we would live in a world where I would not have been able to preach this morning that the Lord is, that, that the plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Psalm 129.3. What we would read is there, there were no plowers that came to my back. I would not dare let them make long furrows. If Jesus had turned back and not obeyed, his back would have been spared. His cheeks would have been spared and not know the pain of hair being plucked out. His face would have been spared and he would not have known shame and he would not have known spitting and continue what would happen. Your back and my back would be where the plowers would plow long their furrows. It would be your back and my back that would be smitten. It would be our face, our cheeks, that would receive the the scorn of having hair be plucked out. It would be our faces that would not be hid from shame and spitting. But beloved, Jesus obeyed. 
So we have our third and last point, the suffering Christ. See, in our, in our first point, we could also say the suffering servant who is sovereign, and we focused on this sovereignty now, and now we can say the sovereign one who suffered. And so we now speak of his suffering. And beloved, isn't this, isn't this comforting? That even as we go into the depths of his suffering, if we can speak of backs, precious backs of Christ, a back of Christ that had to see such smiting, and his face that had to see such shame, but we are, we are not lost in that in a sense of despair because of his sovereignty, and because it was all obedience And so even as we speak of His great suffering, we keep that doctrine of His sovereignty in our hearts. We don't separate it. It is all together. See, as a little boy, when I went from church to church, I saw nothing of the sovereignty of Christ. I knew better because I learned about Jesus being our Savior in our school. But if I were to be one who went from church to church and mass to mass, I would think this Jesus is dead. And yes, we speak of His resurrection, but it's like a little byword. It's never really the big thing. It's really just his humanity, and it's a beautiful sign of love. But no, we don't separate his sovereignty in his very death, in his very giving his back to the smiters. This is God giving his back to the smiters. Even as he gives his his cheek to them who pluck out the hair, this is God who is doing such a thing. And this is why we read of, of... in First Peter that, that speaks of us being saved by the precious blood of God. Now we never mean by this that divinity died. The divinity, divine nature of Jesus did not die. And, and we don't separate those two things. It was the humanity of Jesus that died. But His humanity is so connected to His divinity that we can speak in these ways. We don't separate and say, well, he suffered in his humanity and the divine Jesus was elsewhere. No. There's, see, this is where words are not sufficient. But while they were smiting Jesus, yes, they were doing this unto the Son of God who is divine. And he was in obedience, allowing them to do it. And if he had turned away his back or his cheeks or his face, then your back, your cheeks, and your face would have to be the object of suffering forever. Well, just like we did in the first point, why are these things to be spoken of? In what ways can it help you Help you in, in closing? I, I want to give five ways at least. There's so many ways and focus that we could consider, but look at five ways in which focusing upon the sovereign servant who's also a suffering, a sovereign Lord who's also the suffering servant. Um, in what ways it can help you, especially when we focus upon his suffering. Well, first of all, to see, it helps us see the great evil of sin. And, and I'm, I'm certain from, from commentators that I've read, I've never read um, spoken differently unless you were to read a very liberal commentary. But theologians agree, Reformed theologians agree, the Puritans would say there's nowhere to go. 
that you can learn the depravity of sin better than the cross of Christ. Beloved, see, we haven't gotten to the cross yet. And we know that was the apex of pain. That's where the wrath of God will come very mightily upon Jesus when the lights turn off, especially. But there are elements of it already. Jesus is speaking of His suffering. It's it's the precursor of the cross. And there's already this sense of how. How could Christ undergo such a thing? Well, because sin is so bad. Nothing short of this would have been sufficient. It couldn't have been Moses suffering there. It couldn't have been Isaiah. It couldn't have been all of these saints put together. And if all of them had been crucified for others, it would not have been enough. It couldn't have been a holy angel. It had to be the Son of God. It had to be God-made man. And he had to suffer every spittle that went in that direction and every mocking and every flogging. It was all meant so that sins would be forgiven. Our sins. See, the chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And, and beloved, this is where there's something very, very astonishing about the discipline of, of spanking. We need to help our little children know when it's done. And this is why it has to be done with so much love and pointing to the cross where we're saying, my dear son or daughters, the pain that you're receiving is, is something to point you to the Lord Jesus because see, sin is bad. And if we would have never any pain associated to it, we would think that sin is okay. But it's not okay. And so it hurts me but I need to apply the rod. But even as I do, look to Jesus and remember that when He died on the cross, He was suffering a pain infinitely greater. And when you believe in Him, you have the certainty that you'll never need an eternal flogging, an eternal payment. Because in essence, beloved, that's what hell is. It's where souls go to be eternally paying for their sins. And yet, it's impossible. No one can atone for their own sins. We don't have righteousness to come before the Lord. Our suffering is not even beginning to pay for our sins. But the suffering of the eternal Son of God is... And that's why God's Word makes, makes an emphasis of, of His plowed back and, and, and the furrows being long and, and that He gave His back to the smiters. See, God is drilling in our hearts that the sin that you and I commit need a flogging. And when you look to Jesus, that is the flogging that is a substitute for you. And that is why you can go to heaven with no flogging. And no shame, and no spittle, and no cross, and no nails, and no mocking. Because Jesus underwent that for you. That's how evil sin is. And secondly, something immediately connected to this, it helps us see the great payment for sin. See, if our sins needed Jesus' suffering on the cross because of sin being so bad. But see, it's connected with this, and, 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 and that's the payment that we needed. 
We needed one who was holy and who was obedient, who had never sinned and who was so loving and who was so kind, who only spoke words of, of love to those who were weary. Yes, those who were very hypocritical, he spoke words of, of great warning. But see, even that was in love, that they would not remain in their hypocrisy. And there were those who repented. Apostle Paul was a great Pharisee who was great in his pride. But the Lord broke his heart with a very harsh word. Paul, why persecutest thou me? And Paul acknowledged, that's what I'm doing. And he stopped. He began to preaching Christ and not persecuting Jesus. Even that was a word in season to the weary. That's how bad sin is. That's how costly it is to forgive you of your sins. And thirdly, why do we focus upon this suffering of Jesus? Because it helps you honor and worship Him all the more. Beloved, see, at the end of the day, that's in many ways the summary of everything. We, we stand in awe. He who is holy and righteous and who has a power to rebuke and dry the sea. He has to learn. And what he's learning is to speak words to those who are weary, but to also go to the cross for those who are dead in their sins. But not just go to the cross and die. He has all that prelude of suffering. The trials, the betrayals, the denials, and the smiting, and the shame, and the spitting. Worship Him. Honor Him. And even worship Him corporately. Beloved, isn't it sad to think that if we believe in one who gave his back to the smiters, why, why would I give my back to the couch or to the bed when it is the Lord's day. And maybe because I'm not feeling as, as, as less tired than I wish I was. But if my Savior gave His back to the smiters, see, that very reality makes me think, Lord, I want to give my all to Thee. I want to serve Thee. I want to worship Thee. I want to honor Thee. And this leads to our, to our fourth reason, um, to, to be grateful and to love the Lord all the more. And this is so connected to worship and honor. We, we saw this morning that to fear the Lord is to honor Him, but, but to have true honor is to follow in His ways. And the way to follow in His ways is by loving Him. By loving Him and being grateful. Being grateful. Now, this morning I mentioned something that I was wishing to, to share with the congregation that was such a blessing through the years that we ministered here, the reality of our children's children being seen in and, and so many of the events of the congregation. But there's one more thing, and I, I remember mentioning this after a few years that I was here, and, and, and I want to mention this because I think it's possible for you to be in a church like our own and never put these things together of how precious this is but you may be in other Christian contexts where you never see this being put together. And I was in a Christian context. What I'm meaning is gratitude, connected to obedience, to love. And this is what I mean. I, I remember knowing that, of course, as a Christian, I must be grateful. 
But to me, gratitude was just like, like love. I need to love. And patience, I need to be patient. And, and, and long-suffering, I need to be long-suffering. And, and gratitude was kind of one in that line of, of the fruit of the Spirit. You know, it was is among the heritage congregations that it's drilled in our hearts, right? And I think it's in many of the Dutch Reformed congregations. Yes, that with the thought of misery, we acknowledge our sins. We look to Christ, there is deliverance. And because there's deliverance in Christ, the rest of our lives may be summarized in gratitude. And there is something precious to that, that if you don't stop to think, you will not appreciate it. You may have heard very, very often that, you know, you, maybe you're just following all these things because you're legalistic. You just want to follow the rules. You just think that's how you please God. And often someone who's wanting to be obedient is accused of legalism, usually by other fellow believers. And, and, and it's possible. Any believer can run the risk of doing things just for the sake of doing things. And, and if you're trying to obey just to... F- Merit the favor of God. That, that is legalism. But this is where gratitude comes in in a precious way. It's an antidote to legalism. If you're doing something because you're showing your gratitude to the Lord, if you say, well, why do you go to church twice? Because I love God that much, and I, and I wish I could go more. I'm just grateful. Grateful for everything he does. Why, why do you read your Bible at home? Be, because I'm learning of him, and, and I, as, as I learn of him, I'm more grateful to him. Why do you pray at meals, all the meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Because I'm giving him thanks. You see, the Christian life is a life of gratitude if it's a life of obedience. And when you are obeying out of gratitude, then it's not legalism. Legalism is when you do something because you're forced or because you think that's how I can be saved. That's the only way I can please the Lord and you're not doing it out of delight. So it's not gratitude. But beloved, we're, we're speaking of a servant who gave his back to the smiters and he hid not his face from shame and pity. Does not that make you grateful and because it makes you grateful our last thought is it makes you also more holy because that's what love is true love is true holiness it is a desire to obey because you love him so much and you think like this Lord if you gave your back to the smiters I will not give my eyes to sin. If you gave your, your cheeks to them who plucked off the hair, I will not give my lips to speak transgression. If you gave your face, if you hid not your face from shame and spitting, I, I will hide my face from gossip and from evil. And in your heart, you're thinking, and I'm doing this because I'm so grateful for what thou hast done for me. See, you learned what Jesus taught in 
before he left, remember John captured this in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. A few verses down, John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. See, love in the whole context of obedience. Then later in that same chapter, verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And then chapter 15 of John, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment, and abide in his love. See, Love is the commandment. Obedience is measured by love. That is what love is. That is what obedience is. It is love. And John not only captured this from Jesus, it stayed in his heart. And when he's writing his first and second letter, this is what he says, 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. And then in his second letter, verse 6, he says, This is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. See, this is who Jesus is. He came out of love to the Father. And even though it meant to die for a people... And there have been some who say, why, why did Jesus die for a people? Well, he died for a people because of love to the Father. The Father gave him this people. He loves his Father so much, he will find this people and he will have them. And to have them, he must die. And it doesn't matter because he loves the Father so. And so his love for the Father is translated for the love of the people because he cannot die for them without loving them as well. See, his love for the Father is so great, he will love the people and die for them and receive them. So that when you read, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them who plucked the hair and my face I did not hide from shame and pity. You have to read here, it's, it's the Lord Jesus saying, I love you, my church, my people. I did all that out of love. And see, this, this is how we respond back and we say, Lord Jesus, and so I love you too. You have brought me out of sin so that I will not have all that eternal shame and all the sorrow and all the smiting and I can be in your quarters forever, in heaven forever, loving thee. So beloved, I pray that this increases your worship, it increases your love, it increases your holiness, it increases your gratitude, it increases your comfort. It increases your joy. So I just want to add this to what was mentioned this morning. Blessing is what you and I should seek. But don't just seek blessing for blessing's sake. Seek the Lord of all blessing. And here he is, presenting himself as God, but also man. And not just man who obeyed, but man who suffered, and did not just suffer a little bit. He suffered more than words can measure. And he did that for his own. Have you come to him? Have you believed in him? If you're a true believer, does this make you love him and worship him and be more grateful? Meditate upon it and ask that God will work that way. But see, if you have not yet come, and if you are lost in your sins... Beloved, think of it this way. 
He who did not hide his face from shame and spitting, do you think he will hide his face from one who comes and say, Lord, save me? If he gave his back to the smiters, do you think he will not give his heart to one who says, Lord, I need a Savior? If he gave his cheeks to them who plucked off the hair, will he not give his listening ear to one who says, Savior, I need thee or I die? Do not doubt the willing Savior. Come in faith. If he gave his back to the smiters, he will give you heaven for the asking. If he did not hide his face from shame or spitting, he will not hide to the Father that you have faith in the Son. But he will profess you before the Father. If you're ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of you. Come in faith. And if you have faith, come in worship and in love and in gratitude and in holiness. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God, Lord, how we thank Thee for this third song of the servant. And Lord, our our hearts know the fourth song. And we know, Lord, that there... The servant is described in the greatest description ever to be found in the Old Testament of his suffering. Descriptions that we don't even find in the Gospels, but we find in Isaiah. Lord, help us know that he who gave his back to the smiters is the same one who was wounded for our transgressions, who was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And we find, Lord, that that all of those those beatings and all of that shame and all of that spitting was, was for us. It was because of our sins, and it was to forgive a people Lord, how we thank Thee for for Thy Son. Lord Jesus, we thank Thee, Lord, for having obeyed. We thank Thee, Lord, for being oppressed and afflicted and for opening not Your mouth in, in, in defense of Thyself, for Thou wert receiving everything as lawful because of what sin deserves for us. Lord, forgive us our sins. Forgive us, Lord, every evil thought, Lord, every slight feeling of dislike of someone. Forgive us every gossip. Forgive us every lie. Forgive us, Lord, every time we we deceive others. Forgive us, Lord, when we are afraid in in a baseless way, when we are impatient, when we are angry. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to hate sin. If we see, Lord, all the stripes that Jesus had to receive because of our sins. Oh, Lord, help us hate sin and help us love the Savior and that this love would translate into true fear and that we would know the blessing that we read this morning in our work, in our labor, in our families, in our homes. Lord, we thank Thee 
for the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. It is in thy name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.